Hey, let's go, let's go. Here we go, here we go. If you're outside, come on in. It's good to see you. Um, I don't know who made the room improvement, but you can hold it hard to go wrong with this, so that was very nice, whoever did that. Uh, I wasn't certain I would be back this morning, but I am, but it's always better to kind of plan ahead a bit. So uh, the Reverend Dr. Patrick Byans has become a friend over the past couple of years. He's chair of the theology department at Concordia Chicago. Uh, He's the best preacher I know. Uh, so if I die, when I die, Kirby has instructions to call him and ask him to preach uh, for the funeral. Uh, so there you go. Just letting you know. Uh, try to, you know, say something merciful. So, um, but it, it's great to have him here, and you know, he brings students along. But he's a genius of a guy, and always engaging, and runs a great department at River Forest, and they 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 churn out a lot of very um, well respected and well qualified church workers. So. Uh, he's also a member of St. John as of last year, so we're glad to have him and his family here. Uh, and he's got carte blanche to do whatever he wants because we know that it'll be fa- fabulous. So uh, welcome to Dr. Bynes. Thank you. Thank you. It's working? Okay. Okay. All right. Excellent. All right. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Good to be doing this with you this morning. Um, Thank you for the wonderful introduction there. Um, I'm in my eighth year at uh, Concordia River Forest. Uh, prior to that, I was 10 years at uh, Concordia, New York, which uh, closed this past summer, un- unfortunately. And then prior to that, about uh, 25 years in the parish, Wisconsin and Kentucky. Uh, what I thought I'd uh, do with you today is, uh, Pastor has mentioned so- several times that there's a debate among, uh, uh, in Christian circles today whether the church probably should just go on permanent retreat and uh, kind of remove itself from society, you know, build our own separate little communities and so forth. And he has, of course, suggested that maybe that's not, you know, the way things ought to be. Um, that's, of course, you know, what the scriptures say, too. So I kind of want to uh, take you through maybe four sections of the scripture, two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament, uh, where Christians are engaging in the culture and how all that kind of works out here. Um, my two main uh, Bible verses uh, that I had this with, uh, I've given to you there. Uh, first, Jesus in the upper room, John 17, at the Last Supper. The world hated them. He's praying to his Father here. The world hated them because they don't belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then for Matthew Jesus to the disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. And I think we'll see how some of that works. Uh, The first uh, little piece that I've given you here is a very short excerpt from uh, a very long letter um, from the second century A.D., a letter written by a Christian, we don't know who it is, uh, to a Roman official by the name of Diognetus. 
This is one of the first attempts at Christian apologetics, defending Christianity, or at least explaining Christianity to a non-Christian who may be having, you know, heard rumors but needs to know more. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. Which I should just say is, in some respects, unusual. Um, Could you identify a Jewish man walking down the street in Jesus' day? Yes, how so? Earlocks, earlocks, and the tassels on the prayer shawl. Take off the tassels and it looks like any other shawl. The, the very kind of thing that blind Bartimaeus threw off, as we hear in the gospel for today, except Jewish men had tassels on. Okay. Christians don't look distinct. You, you could tell who was a member of uh, a, a priesthood by how they dressed. Some religions had a permanent priesthood, others were elected, but they would have a distinctive way of, of going about document here says you can't tell a Christian just by looking at them. And yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. The Apostle Paul, whom we'll take a look at bit later, has Roman citizenship, and yet in his letter to the Philippians, he can also make the claim, our citizenship is in heaven. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. What that means is, in the Roman world, when a baby is born into the family, you have a party, and the husband takes the child into his arms and holds it up before the crowd and announces whether he wishes to consider this his child or not. If he decides that it's not, he has a legal right to put it out on the curb. Might be adopted, it might not. They notice that Christians don't do that. They share their meals but not their wives. (laughs) Obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. Okay, so the first uh, text I'd like to take you into is the story of Joseph in Egypt back in the book of Genesis. Um, 
I find the story of Joseph in Egypt rather intriguing. If, if first, because of its length, 14 chapters of Genesis are devoted to this man, Joseph, who otherwise plays no other role in the, in the Old Testament story. Okay. He's not the firstborn, which is Reuben. Joseph, uh, Jacob has 12 sons, you remember, from Sunday school, right? So I gave you this nice little chart there, okay? Uh, it's a rather complicated family tree. Um, Joseph has 12 sons and one daughter, Dinah, okay? Uh, Joseph has two wives, and each of the wives has a maid, and so the 12 sons are born from four different women, okay? The firstborn of them all is Reuben, okay? So he's really the one in charge of stuff. So that's, it's rather striking that uh, the Bible spends so much time on Joseph. I think one of the reasons is that that will eventually get us into Egypt, from which the big event of the Exodus under Moses come, comes about. Uh, so in the bigger picture, he's the one that ends up bringing the family down in, into Egypt. Um, Joseph is the favored son of Jacob because he and his brother Benjamin are the only two boys born of his favorite wife, Rachel. Remember that story that uh, uh, Jacob had run away from his brother Esau, goes up to, to Laban hundreds of miles away, and agrees to work seven years for Rachel, and on the wedding night it ends up being her sister Leah. Okay, he's got to work another seven years to get Rachel. Okay. Ray, uh, Leah, by the way, is described in the Bible as the one with weak eyes, which is a biblical euphemism for meaning she's really ugly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, Rachel is the one he's always loved, and, so, and Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, is the child he loves. You remember the story of the uh, coat of many colors? Okay, so there's favoritism there. Throughout the whole story of, of Jacob and his 12 sons, you know, Joseph is the favorite, and he's a spoiled brat. Okay, it really is. There's not really much to like about Joseph in the first half of the story. Actually, probably the first seven-eighths of the story. Um, we don't see much, what I would say, spiritual development or... In, Lutheran language, sanctification out, out of Joseph until the very end, okay? Um, he plays things up, okay? He, he struts around with this coat of many colors, which is really probably a, a supervisor's coat, a, a coat that displays, I'm the boss. And he goes out as a 17-year-old to check up on his brothers, okay? They hate him for that, of course, okay? Um, and they hate Dad for doing that. Then Joseph starts to have dreams from God, it's implied, but that's not really said in the text. Okay? And then he tells, reveals these dreams to his brothers and his mother and father. And it's that they're all one day going to be bowing down to him. Sometimes it's better just to keep things to ourselves. Okay? <laughs> if, if, if he knows this, you know, he doesn't have to say it. Just... You know, like Mary, she pondered all things in her heart. Okay, so um, maybe that would have been better. Okay, um, his brothers hated him so much they decided to kill him on one one occasion. Okay, um, it is Judah from whom King David and Jesus will come, who says, "Let's not kill him. Let's sell him to traitors instead." Okay. 
Reuben also says that too, because he's the firstborn. He's the one that's going to have to answer to dad no matter what happens. Okay? So the brothers uh, sell Joseph to traders on their way to Egypt. They take Joseph's robe of many colors, uh, rip it up and dip it in an animal's blood, bring it to dad. He weeps. An animal has destroyed my son, the son that I love. Um, he ends up in the house of Potiphar, the uh, captain of the guard. Okay. Um, his wife seduces him. Um, and uh, we, this is the first time that we really find any kind of statement out of Joseph's mouth that has to do with his faith and trust in God. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God when she wants him to go to bed with her? She grabs his robe, okay, he flees, and when uh, her husband comes home, he holds, she holds out the robe and said, you know, you know, this, you know, look what he has done. So he gets thrown in prison. While in prison, there's some other guys there, they tell him their dreams, and he reveals the meaning. Then as the story goes, uh, one of the uh, prisoners in, in, in the jail is let, let out, and Pharaoh restores him to his position, and the guy remembers, there was a guy in prison okay, who interpreted my dream, and it came to pass just as I had, I had said. He had said it would. And then Pharaoh has dreams as well, and Joseph is brought in to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and from that point on, okay, Joseph is raised to a position of authority in Egypt and put over as, I suppose we'd call him, the uh, chief steward of agriculture. Okay. I'd like to take you on the, uh, the text then that talks about that point on. Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they rushed him out of the dungeon, and he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh then asked his officials, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot in his sec as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zapanath Paniah and gave him Azanath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. Ooh. And Joseph went throughout all the land of Egypt. Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph made the first Manasseh and said, It is because God made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land 
of my suffering. And Joseph assists the folks during the years of famine. And that ends up how his brothers end up in Egypt because they've got to come to, to Egypt to buy grain. And Joseph is the one, eventually, that um, assists them in doing that. Joseph is in Egypt, and he is now dressing like an Egyptian. He's got a shaved head like an Egyptian. He's got an Egyptian wife who had been the daughter of an Egyptian priest. This did not sit well centuries later with the Jews. Because the Bible is totally silent here on what his wife actually believes from this point on in terms of God. So there's a Jewish work. Scholars aren't quite sure where to date it. Somewhere between 200 B.C. and 280. Let's put it right in the middle, time of Jesus. Um, called Joseph and Nazareth. And it's a story about how she is converted to Joseph's religion. Okay, and how they fall in love. The Bible has nothing to say about that. But I, I would submit that why write a story about that other than to say, well, she has to have been converted. Okay? But the biblical text doesn't actually say that. Okay? The one thing that I do note is that when it comes to naming their kids, they don't get Egyptian names. They get Hebrew names. I think that's significant. Okay? The one is named Manasseh which, as you see there, means he who brings about forgetfulness. So all the stuff about Joseph and his brothers wanting to kill him and then selling him as a slave in, in Egypt, okay, this is the beginning of that kind of reconciliation in, in the name they give to one of their boys. And the other child is named double fruitfulness. Things are going to go well here. Things are going to go well. It'll take Joseph a little while to work through all this. The brothers will make sev several trips, and Joseph is kind of a nasty guy and really plays around with them. Okay? Um, but at the end, like on the last page of the book of Genesis, Joseph will finally say, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, so that all these people are preserved still to this day. In the bigger picture of things, if I go back to my original kind of question, why 14 chapters about Joseph, one of them, uh, an answer to one of those uh, issues might, might simply be, the big event in the whole book of Genesis is God's covenant with Abraham. Okay? Threefold covenant, land, offspring, and blessing to the nations. Well, even at this point of the story, we're out of the land, we're in Egypt, but yet the nations are being blessed through one of Abraham's descendants, Joseph. Okay. I'm not going to get into the debate as to who, when, where, and why wrote the book of Genesis. Okay. Um, but I would say that this story, I think, will have a longer life to it and be especially useful down the road as the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews find themselves under foreign domination, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, okay? Can you be faithful to God 
in less than ideal circumstances. Okay? Or, or as Psalm 137 asks the question, how can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the psalmist seems to say, I can't. Okay. This story would seem to say, yeah, you can. Okay? God will bless it through that. Interesting article uh, at, the, at the end of this section I gave for you um, by Susan Nidditch, um, professor at Amherst, I do believe. Joseph is fully integrated into Egyptian society. He shaves like an Egyptian, dresses like an Egyptian, takes an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. The people he works for are kind and wise, recognizing Joseph's talent. This is especially true of Pharaoh, who quickly promotes Joseph to the role of the king's right hand. All this suggests that the author wishes to present Joseph's Egyptianizing as a positive, or at least not a negative trait. The one thing that Joseph doesn't change is his God. From the beginning, the story tells us that Yahweh was watching over Joseph, and throughout the story, Joseph, Joseph makes it clear that he knows of this. In chapter 40, he tells Pharaoh's ministers that his ability to interpret dreams comes from God, and he repeats this to Pharaoh in chapter 41. Toward the end of the story, when his brothers are afraid that Joseph will take retribution against them, Joseph claims that what happened to him came from God. Nevertheless, this loyalty to God is what makes him successful in his new land. In fact, no less a character than Pharaoh praises Joseph's abilities as coming from God, exactly as Joseph himself had told him. And thus, Joseph is able to remain fully pious, while at the same time becoming almost fully Egyptian. Thoughts, questions, and from anybody leave you guys some space here. Okay, staying in the Old Testament, uh, next I'd like to go to the book of Daniel. We are moving along centuries here. The, the Jews in the land of Judah have been taken captive by the Babylonians and find themselves now in Babylon. Famous story here of Daniel and his three Hebrew buddies that we usually know by the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, and that will be part of the story here as well. Almost in contrast to Joseph's experience in Egypt is the experience of these Hebrews in Babylon. Um, so I've given you the text here out of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. 
the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Yes. When it, when it says that he was able to remain fully pious, was, was this after the establishment of the sacrificial system? This is all before the sacrificial system. Yeah. Yep. Which is interesting to note here because the, the transition here is that we're in the situation after the sacrificial system and we're in the era of distinction of foods, clean versus unclean food, which will come up thus in the story. So, the Babylonians want to make good Babylonians out of these Hebrews, right? They're going to teach them the Babylonian language and Babylonian literature, okay? And it says the chief official gave them new names. He called Belteshazzar Hananiah, oh, Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, Azariah he called Abednego. And notice the meaning of the names. Okay? Their original Hebrew names are something about their relationship to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And they've been given different names now that relate to their situation as devotees of one or more Babylonian gods. Okay? So what's going on here? What's the function of the name change? Yeah, you know, so you're no longer the service of the God, you know, whatever you served back in Judah, hmm, you're, you're in the service of the Babylonian gods now. Okay. Kind of brainwashing here, and of course a forced change of religion. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. It's interesting the word defile himself is used a couple of times here. Uh, as we read through the story, you might think, you know, the, the, the Babylonians are kind of eating rich food. Well, I think there's more involved here than simply saying it's got a higher fat content or something, you know. Uh, this is the distinction between kosher and unkosher food, okay? So they are trying to you know, remove them from those associations that they had with their um, religion with, with Yahweh. Okay. Um, and uh, da Daniel, Daniel very shrewdly here says, Oh, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So if Jesus said, be wise as serpents or shrewd as serpents, you know, harmless as doves, I think Daniel is playing that out here. Okay? Uh, th there was nothing in the, uh, uh, the Old Testament kosher laws that, that said you only had to eat vegetables. They were not vegetarians. Okay? But Daniel's taking that route to totally say, to say okay, I, I know what can get us looking better okay? if we didn't eat their, their food. Okay? So he is, he is able to to play with the situation he's in, okay? And as, as it comes out, uh, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So they entered into the king's service. Okay. 
So they are using the culture they are in and using it to their advantage as, as well. And at, the, and at the same time, they're not breaking the God-given laws of the food distinctions. The other, of course, famous story uh, out of the book of Daniel is uh, the story of how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we know them by their Babylonian names, right? Okay, Not their original Hebrew names. Okay? Um, and the order of King Nebuchadnezzar is that all people have to bow down and worship the golden statue that he has set up. It's one of the most delightful stories. In, in the, it almost reads like a children's story because of the repetition, the various instruments are repeated three or four times. I just love this thing. Um, and so we're at the very end of that, that story here. Um, it, is, it is one of the traditional uh, readings for the Easter Vigil, the last, the last one. Um, let's start in the middle of that paragraph. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But here's the big point. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The easy statement is saying, you know, God can deliver us from that, okay? Can you go into that furnace even if God chooses not to? Okay. I put the book of Daniel in a, a category of, uh, I'll call it uh, resistance literature. There, there are several texts like that that the Jews produced. Um, the book of Judith is, is, is like that uh, in the Old Testament Apocrypha. Second Maccabees. Um, it's the same kind of thing. Um, these stories would have a, a long life because, as I said, you know, the Jews are under oppression and ruled by one world power after another. Here we're in Babylon, but next it'll be Persia, and then will come the Greeks, and then will come the Romans. Okay? A number of these stories are always set back in a previous generation. The, the book of Judith is like that. It's set in the times of uh, uh, Israelite oppression by the Assyrians, but it's written during the time when the Jews are persecuted by the Greeks. Okay? So looking back, kind of like, I know I'm dating myself here, kind of like the Shomash. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah, a war was going on. What war is going on in, in Mash? The Korean War. But when did Mash air? During the Vietnam War. Same, same kind of things going on in the Bible. The story about the past that's relevant to the present. Okay? So the, the issue is, no matter what the foreign power is, and they're ordering you to do something you know, that is against the will of God, okay? are you willing to do that even if God is not going to deliver you? Okay? Even if God is not going to deliver you. Even if he does not, we will not serve your gods. Okay, flip to the next one. A, I suppose a negative story <laughs> rather than a positive one. Peter's denial. Probably one of the most famous stories you know, out, out of the Gospels. Um, I'll preface it by this uh, statement uh, by Paul in 1 Corinthians. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And what I'd like to show you is that that's embedded in this episode of Peter's denial. I'm giving it to you from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, one reason we're in the year of Mark, and the Gospels we've heard in church have all been, for the most part, from the Gospel of, of Mark this, this year. Uh, but also because I think there's some features in the Mark account that are totally unique to Mark's telling of it, and uh, the other Gospels do not have them. Gospel of Mark, I'm fairly convinced, is, is written in Rome or Italy in the days following the great fire in Rome in 64 AD. Summer of 64, um, Rome burned for six, seven, seven days. Ten of the 14 districts were hit by the fire, four completely destroyed. A million people are homeless. And the folks aren't thinking that the Roman emperor, Nero, is not doing enough you know, to provide food and shelter. For them. He has to find a political scapegoat. The Roman Senate always hated Nero. They despised him. Okay. Um, but the people just loved him. He was doing all kinds of weird things. That, you know, things that an emperor shouldn't do, but they liked it. Um, like entering contests. He went off to the Olympics and won everything he entered. You know, uh, <laughs> play, played, the, played the old harp called a kithara. He practiced diligently, spent hours a day perfecting in it, and then it would perform, and he was honestly looking for applause. Okay, and he, you know, um, the Roman said, "This is not what an emperor should be doing." Um, but but now he's in real political doo doo, <laughs> uh, because now the people of Rome are turning on him, and he finds a scapegoat. It's the Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus is the one who describes it that uh, that Nero now starts to persecute the Christians in the city of Rome. There's, there's no edict saying round up all Christians everywhere. He simply wants to get back on the good side of the folks of Rome, and so he points the finger. It's them. They started the fire. Okay. Well, in the midst of all that, Christians are being executed. Tacitus says uh, they're burned at the stake, torn up by dogs, thrown to, thrown to the lions, uh, Nero even uses his gardens for the, a nighttime spectacle. Okay, uh, We know where those gardens are, uh, the gardens of Agrippina in the area known as the Vatican. Okay. Uh, as part of all that, Peter and Paul are executed. Okay. Peter and Paul and Luke and Mark have all been in Rome at that same time. Okay. Mark has heard things from Peter, and then writes his gospel. I would say probably within a year after Peter's execution by uh, crucifixion. Mark then writes his gospel to encourage Christians who really for the first time are being executed at the instigation of the Roman government. All persecution prior to that was from the Jewish synagogues. Okay. Now the government's getting involved and Mark is responding to that. Okay. Um, and thus we get then the, uh, a number of episodes in the, in the passion story in the Gospel of Mark that emphasizes how a Christian under persecution and arrest and put on trial, how you're supposed to respond. Okay? You know, so how did Jesus respond when he was on trial, when he was arrested, and all that kind of stuff. So that, that becomes the, the model then, then for the Christian. 
But they're negative models too, and we get Peter as the negative model. Don't act like Peter. But what I'd like to show you is that uh, Peter has a chance of escape. As Paul says, he will provide the way of escape. Peter was given it, but he didn't take it. After Jesus' arrest, Peter followed him from a distance into the high priest's courtyard. He sits with the guards and warms himself by the fire. While Peter is in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's slave girls approaches. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus? But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about. He went out to the gateway. A rooster crowed. Those last two sentences, only Mark has them. He went out to the gateway. Why that little detail? And as he's standing at the gateway, the rooster crows. Jesus had predicted the crow of the rooster. Before before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me thrice. It's going to be repeated at the very end. Peter already heard this in the upper room. He went to the gateway. He hears the rooster. What should he do? Go through the door. Get out of there. Get out of there. But he decides to hang around. Hmm. It only gets worse. All right. We're never really told why he is there. Okay. All kinds of speculation. You know, Peter is curious. He wants, he wants the inside information as to what they're doing with Jesus. Maybe he thinks he can help somehow. He can be the hero. If only he denies Jesus three times, he can be the hero, yeah. Um, but... We're never told. Um, We like to psychoanalyze this stuff, but eh, the Bible doesn't take us into psychology. So we're really never given the answer as to what's going on in Peter's mind. But Mark is telling us, and thus telling the reader, okay, you've been put in a situation of temptation. You've been asked the question about your identity with Jesus, and you've denied your identity. That, that's, the, that's the question that's going to be asked. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And the answer should be yes. No more information is necessary. Are you a Christian? Yes. He went out of the gateway. The rooster crowed. You know, the bell rang, and still he stayed. When the slave girl saw him, she, she again began to say, this time to the bystanders. Now there's a crowd. This man is one of them. Again, he denied it. And again, a little while later, the bystanders now say to Peter, now the whole gang comes at him. You must be one of them. You're a Galilean. Then he kicked it up a notch. He started to curse and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, by the way, I think it's 72 times in Mark's gospel he uses the word immediately. The rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had told him before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me thrice. And then look at this last line. 
And after he had thought about it for a bit, now this is my translation, I'm taking nine English words to do what Greek does in one. <laughs> Epibalon, which literally means, as I, as I suggest there, simply throw about, which, which tells me this is not some instant remembering, oh, yeah. No, it's, okay. Can I still stay here somehow? Okay. Do I, do I have to get out of here? I still want to hang around. Okay. And only after he had you know, thought it out, rationalized it through, did he begin to cry. And only Mark has this kind of detail. As kind of a warning to everybody, you think you can, you think you can play it safe. Earlier, earlier, um, yeah, that, that first line that I quoted, Peter followed Jesus from a distance. Can you follow from a distance? Hmm. No. Mark is saying you can't follow from a distance. Okay? Either you're with Jesus or you're not. Okay? Either you're next, next to him and are going to take whatever comes to Jesus, you know, come on you. The story we hear of blind Bartimaeus today, okay? the last words are, he followed him on the way. That's a key word in Mark. Mark, at the, at the arrest of Jesus, only in Mark is this, uh, the, this, this guy who is, uh, they grab hold of the, one of the, of the disciples, never told who it is, who was following Jesus. They grabbed his robe and he ran off naked. Okay. He was following, but he's not willing to follow naked. Jesus will be naked on the cross. If you're going to follow Jesus, follow in the shame all the way. Okay. So I think this story is one of warning. Morning. However, with that nuance that God does provide the means of escape, the gateway is there. The rooster just crowed. Get out. Last episode, I'll give you, uh, take you into uh, the journeys of Paul and Silas in Philippi and Thessalonica. Um, story here starts out that uh, while on Paul, this is Paul's second missionary journey, uh, Paul had exorcised a demon from a slave girl, and her soothsayer owners then seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the magistrates, and uh, the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to flog them. As this, this, is quite, this is quite a long episode. They end up being thrown in prison. They are miraculously delivered, and the jailer ends up being converted. So I'm kind of leaving out all of that stuff. Okay. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Huh. But Paul said, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? <laughs> He's playing his citizenship card here. Okay? <laughs> I think we probably are unexpectedly, you know, drawn to this. Okay? This is not necessarily what we would expect Paul to do. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. You just flogged a Roman citizen. That's against the law. You can't flog a Roman citizen without a trial first. Okay? I've got to have a hearing before you do this. Okay? So they're all scared. Okay? 
And of course, they want, they want Paul and Silas to leave town quietly. No, you're going to usher me out with a brass band. That's what happens. Huh. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and appeased. Uh, appeal, beg, call, aside, suck up to. Okay. <laughs> and they escorted them out and asked them to leave the city. Okay. So Paul and Silas leave with dignity okay, as Roman citizens. Then the very next town, they're arrested again, okay? Um, the Jews are jealous because Paul's making converts, okay? Some of them were persuaded, uh, some of the converts were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. Those are, those are Gentiles who have been coming to the synagogue in droves. They just haven't made the full conversion by being circumcised. And not a few of the leading women, wealthy Gentile women. The Jews were jealous. Okay? This happens over and over and over uh, in, in Paul's ministry. He'll go into the Jewish synagogue you know, to talk about Jesus. He's got great credentials from Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Of course, tell us you know, what you have to say. He'll start talking about Jesus. And it's the Gentiles in the congregation... Uh, that end up accepting Paul's message. And the Jews will kick them out, okay? And then be very jealous. Why? Over and over we're told that these are Gentiles with lots of money. Okay. There was discovered, I think about 25 years ago, a, uh, a donor plaque from a, a second century Jewish synagogue in Turkey, okay? On the donor plaque, you know, all churches have these, donated by, right? Okay. Uh, there were 54 Gentile names. Who would have thought 54 non-Jews are giving money to support the synagogue? And they're all with Paul now. Okay? So the Jewish authorities are very jealous and upset about what's going on. They dragged this guy, Jason, one of, the, one of these Gentile new converts. Okay? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the, people and, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And here's the bottom line. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. If you can, you can bribe the Roman authorities. You can bribe the Roman authorities. We see that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, too, about with the, the, the chief priests, you know, with the soldiers who are supposed to be guarding the tomb. Same thing, okay? And if Pilate gets wind of it, we'll keep him happy. Okay? Yeah. So, be wise as serpents, harmless as dogs. Okay. All right. I'll stop talking. Anything from anybody? Yes?
Yeah. Trying to overturn the system. They're just trying to be in the system as witnesses. Right. And then I'm just trying to think about that today, how crazy everything is. Uh, they should just chill a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting point you bring up because in the first century, when Paul and Silas you know, going around and stuff, there would be a ton of things that they could have said is wrong about what's going on in the Roman Empire, like putting out your kid on the curb. Okay? Yeah. And eventually that would change okay? as, as we get more and more Roman officials becoming Christian, but that's a couple centuries down the road. Okay? Yeah fascinating letter of Philemon's often neglected. I don't know if it's on the lectionary that we ever hear from, Philemon, about, from Paul's letter to Philemon. It's only one page long. But this letter to a man who had a runaway slave that came, came to Paul, and he talks about that, that whole kind of thing. You read through it that Paul really wants Philemon to give freedom to this slave, Onesimus. Okay? But he's not talking there about, you know, I think we ought to change all the laws. Okay? One thing at a time. One thing at a time. And how to and how to how to deal with how how does this slave owner deal with this slave who just now became a Christian? Now they're brothers and sisters, brothers in Christ. That dynamic changes everything. Yeah. Anybody else? Okay. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.